0: Hey, you guys know my wife, Robin McGraw, has Robin McGraw Revelation, which is a great skincare product, and one of hers is called Let There Be Bright. This is a triple action brightening serum. It brightens the complexion and even skin tone with this seriously fast-acting serum that combines Lumaskin, lactic acid, and vitamin C. It's RobinMcGrawRevelation.com. That's the only place you can get it. And right now, you get 30% off all products. Just use code RMR30. RMR30. In 2011, the death of 32-year-old Rebecca Zahal rocked the beautiful beachside community of Coronado, California. Now, Coronado was best known for its legendary hotel, its extreme wealth and its palatial mansions. But with Rebecca's death, the city built beside the glittering Pacific and filled with glittering people had a dark shadow cast over it. It had all the makings of a high profile case, a beautiful woman, dead at one of the city's most glamorous estates under gruesome circumstances. She was nude, bound, gagged, and hanged. Many began to fear The town where nothing bad ever happened had its very own murder.
1: 32-year-old Rebecca Zahao was found hanging nude and bound from a balcony in the mansion's courtyard. The
2: house belongs to Jonah Shacknai, an Arizona pharmaceutical tycoon.
3: Zahao's nude body was found just days after her boyfriend's son took a fall at the home that would end his life. According to family members, Rebecca
2: Zahao was watching over Max at the time. Zahao had been dating Jonah Shacknai for at least two years.
0: But police ruled Rebecca's death a suicide. Despite acknowledging the suspicious circumstances, they said the evidence showed Rebecca was overwhelmed with guilt and took her own life. After all, as we know, it was just two days before that her boyfriend's six-year-old son had been gravely injured, and he was injured on her watch. But what about the strange and unexplained events that happened behind The mansion walls in the dead of night at 1043 ocean drive in rebecca's final hours the arrival of a guest a man staying in the mansion's guest house on rebecca's last night alive a mysterious grim voicemail that to this day no one has ever heard reports of blaring music and a raging house party and a woman's high-pitched call for help echoing through the night do they all point to something more sinister than suicide this is episode two of mansion of secrets the mysterious death of rebecca zahal the day after six-year-old max Shacknai took what would prove to be a fatal fall off the second story landing in his father's home his family began to fear the worst max was still in a medically induced coma They thought he'd be improving by now. Was there a chance he might not pull through? Or would Max survive, but be completely brain damaged? Was the Maxie they knew gone forever? Would he ever be the same smart, warm, happy-go-lucky boy he was before? As Max's divorced parents, Dina and Jonah, spent a sleepless night at the hospital and at a nearby Ronald McDonald house, their families began to fly into town for support and, God forbid, in case they had to say their final goodbyes to Max. Dina's twin sister, Nina Romano, came in from San Francisco with her teenage son, and Jonah's younger brother, Adam Shacknai flew in from his home in Tennessee and settled into the mansion's guest house. Adam was the last known person to see Rebecca Zahal alive. Within 24 hours of his arrival at the mansion, Rebecca would be dead. To understand why Rebecca's family thinks he, Adam, was involved in Rebecca's death, we need to know more about who Adam Shacknai is. Here's what we do know about him. Adam, who was 48 at the time of Rebecca's death, is nothing like his brother Jonah. They are six years apart, and although they both say they had a great brotherly relationship growing up, they seem to just be cut from different cloth. Jonah became a hugely successful businessman, incredibly wealthy, always in a suit, living in mansions, and was married twice. Adam lived what seemed to be a much simpler life. Although he graduated from the University of Memphis with a degree in American literature, he chose a life on the water, becoming first a deckhand on tugboats and later a tugboat operator. He had been doing the job for 28 years, living part-time on the boats, and the rest of the time in a modest apartment in Memphis. He was in a 20-year-long relationship with a woman named Mary, but they kept their relationship private and chose never to marry. Adam just lived his life differently than his older brother. I'm not saying it was better, I'm not saying it was worse, but it was definitely different. One's living on a tugboat part-time, the other is in one of the most famous mansions in California. But despite their differences, they both say they had an unbreakable bond. Jonah testified,
1: Well, we were very close. Obviously, there was a a meaningful age difference, so we weren't hanging out with similar friends. But yeah, we spent a lot of time together uh, in the home. Um, I'd like to think I helped Adam learn some sports. Um, You know, I just did the kinds of things with him that a big brother would typically do. Adam testified.
2: I think uh, considering the age difference, we were close. He would always extended himself to me. I'm told that when I was born, which I don't remember, uh, he pushed me around. We still lived in the Bronx, New York at that time, and he just pushed me around in boxes all the time, and he was pretty captivated with me, I guess. And uh, despite the age difference, uh, he'd always extended himself. He got his driver's license. I think I was only 10 years old, and he still took me to the mall and just you know, took me around town and all that kind of stuff.
0: According to lawyers for Becca's family, Adam felt like Jonah had always had his back. If what Rebecca's family believes is true, that Adam murdered Rebecca, is there a chance he saw this as an opportunity to repay that favor? That he wanted to have his big brother's back for once and saw this as an an eye-for-an-eye revenge for someone hurting his beloved brother's young son? Or could jealousy have played a part? By Adam's account, he was completely happy with his life. One can only imagine it might be hard living in your older brother's shadow. Was there a chance he was envious of his brother, of his estate, and his beautiful new girlfriend? Rebecca's family attorney theorized that he believes the evidence shows Rebecca's death was a result of sexual assault. If Adam took a shot with her and got rejected, if he had come on to her, if he had propositioned her, could that rejection make him angry enough to kill? Now, I want to be fair here with Adam, who I don't know, so I want to speak on his behalf here a bit. These are just hypothetical theories put forth by Rebecca's family. Adam has never been charged. Adam has never been convicted. And there has been no evidence that Adam is jealous of his brother, envious of his brother. So these are just what they say. They're theories. And her family is very pained. We talked in episode one about how hard it is for families to accept that a loved one took their own life. But I have talked to the family, and I can assure you, they feel very passionately about these theories. Now, Adam was at home in Memphis when he received an emotional phone call from his father about Max. His dad was completely distraught and told him Jonah's son had been in a terrible Accident. I emphasize accident for a reason. Adam said in his entire life he had never heard his father that upset. After receiving the devastating news about his nephew, Adam decided to call Rebecca. Now that's right. He called Rebecca, not Jonah, and asked her if she thought he should fly into town. He says Rebecca told him to quote, follow his heart. So he booked a ticket and headed to California. Adam testified he had a severe fear of flying, but he got on that plane anyway to be by his brother's side. Now, by all accounts, Adam and Rebecca didn't know each other all that well. So some people found it strange that he would call her and not his brother. However, I want you to think about this. In a family emergency situation, he just might not have wanted to burden Jonah with any logistics, with something else to do, something else to think about, have to relive it one more time with his brother, to get emotional one more time with somebody that he loved. After all, that was what Rebecca was determined to do, handle the logistics, handle all of the things that she could take off of Jonah so he could focus solely on Max. He also may have wanted an independent read of whether he would be helpful or harmful in attending. It seemed like Adam wanted to know, is it gonna be helpful if I come, or am I just gonna be something else that has to be taken care of and add to the chaos? Jonah or a family member might not have been the best people to ask, but Rebecca, who was close to the situation but not family, might have had the objectivity, might have been able to give Adam a good read on the situation, so he thought, well, I'll call her.
2: Rebecca had been giving the family updates and uh, I touched base with Rebecca about coming out there. Okay.
1: Just to summarize the conversation, especially...
2: uh, I just wanted to sort of tiptoe around the idea of me coming out there, make sure I wasn't going to, you know, I'd be welcome. Uh, like I said, I'd had a very cordial relationship with Rebecca. I was Not at all surprised that she, to me, you know, when she said, follow my heart, that kind of meant to come on with it. Uh, It would have been, I don't mean to sound crass, but like I said, I travel a lot with my job. I enjoy being home and I didn't want to get in the way. And if she had said, don't come, uh, uh, at least for the time, you know, until I sat and thought about it, if I really had to see Max or something, I would have been perfectly okay with it.
0: So while Jonah stayed by Max's side, Rebecca, doing her supportive girlfriend duties, picked Adam up from the airport. Now, Rebecca's family believes as she headed to the airport, she very well may have been picking up her killer. And again, this is her family's belief. Their first stop was the hospital. Then Jonah left the hospital briefly, and the three of them, Jonah, Rebecca, and Adam, as well as a friend, had dinner together at a local restaurant called The Fish Market. It was an intense and awkward meal. Adam later testified that during dinner he couldn't help feeling sorry for Rebecca. He says she was quiet for most of the meal, barely touched her food. After eating, they went their separate ways. It was the last time Jonah would see his girlfriend alive. Jonah went back to the Ronald McDonald house and Adam and Rebecca headed back to the Spreckles mansion. Unless someone we don't know about was there that night, they were completely alone on the property. Rebecca's sister, Zena, who was in the house on the day Max fell, the one who called 911, had already gone home to Missouri. The dog Ocean had been sent to a kennel. There was no one there to hear a struggle or a woman tumbling out a window. There was no dog to bark a warning. Adam testified he last saw Rebecca at around 8 p.m. He says after dinner he told her if she needed to talk to come and find him. He says he told her he understood feelings of grief because he had struggled with the loss of his mother. Adam says he then retired to the guest house, and that was the last time he saw Rebecca alive. He says the next time he saw her, it was when he discovered her dead body dangling naked from the mansion's bedroom window. Now let me be clear. When you picture this guest house where Adam was staying, I want you to know this wasn't just some shed out back. This guest house was on the other side of a grand swimming pool, and it even had its own address separate from the mansion. It's interesting to note that even though his brother's mansion was enormous and had 27 rooms, Adam still planned to stay in the guest house. Was he just being respectful? The mansion obviously had plenty of bedrooms. He could have stayed in one so far from Rebecca, she wouldn't have even noticed he was there. Maybe he just wanted privacy. Maybe he thought, I'm a guest, this is a guest house, this is where guests stay. The media also went a little wild with this detail. You remember in the O.J. Simpson case, the star witness was Cato Kalin, the guy in the guest house who heard a thump. After that, people seem to automatically assume if you're in the guesthouse when someone dies, you must know something. But police say Adam is innocent. And if his story is true, he wasn't in the house the night she died. Staying in the guesthouse means he was basically staying in a separate house next door. It wasn't so close to the house that you could hear someone's movements inside if Rebecca harmed herself or even if someone else harmed her. It's normal that Adam would know no more than any other neighbor. Now, once he settled in, Adam says he called his girlfriend. Then he says he took the sleeping pill Ambien and went to sleep around 8 p.m. Now, that may seem early, but remember, he was coming from eastern time zones, probably jet-lagged, and we can only imagine that it had been a stressful day for everyone taking an ambien would also certainly knock him out so he might not hear any suspicious sounds from the mansion everybody reacts to these drugs differently but they certainly don't make anyone more alert now we come to the unexplained hours these next few hours rebecca's final hours alive remain a complete mystery in the eyes of the family and they are crucial the police think they know what happened the family thinks they do not know what happened in what order or the details. Everybody agrees on the outcome because they know she wound up dead. But how things got from A to Z is where all of the disagreement comes in this story. In the middle of the night, Rebecca, described by Adam as quiet and seemingly melancholy at dinner, and calm and strong on the phone with her sister, either launched an elaborate and bizarre suicide plot while Adam dozed in the guest house, or someone attacked her. Despite police saying Rebecca killed herself that night, Rebecca's family believes that something horrifying happened to her in the chunk of time between when she said goodbye to her boyfriend Jonah after dinner, to when her body was discovered.
3: I truly believe that my sister died because Max got injured and somebody held her responsible for Max's injury and decided to execute her. As soon as I found out that she was naked and she was bound, it confirmed my fear that she did not commit suicide. She was murdered.
0: It was 6.48 AM when Adam Shacknai called 911. On that call, he tells them he has discovered Rebecca's body.
4: Is there an emergency?
2: What are you reporting? Yeah, uh, I, I got a girl go hung herself.
0: Adam claims he woke up, took a shower, and decided to walk over to a coffee shop. As he approached the mansion, he testified that out of the corner of his eye, he saw something. Something unspeakable and crazy. Rebecca's naked body hanging by a red water-skiing tow rope from the balcony. Adam testified he had a strong feeling that when he saw that, it was too late. He had the feeling she was dead already.
4: As you said, I, I got a girl, she hanged herself, right? Yes, sir. And what do you mean by I got a girl?
2: Um, that was what I said to a 911 operator when I was looking up at a girl hanging.
4: At that point in time, when her hands are tied behind her back, her legs are tied together, the gags in her mouth, was it your opinion that this was a suicide?
2: Um, I didn't have, um, an opinion. I wasn't considering myself an analyst of any kind. My Feeling was that Rebecca had hanged herself.
0: In the call, Adam desperately tries to tell the operator where he is, but he doesn't know the mansion's exact address.
2: Yeah, uh, I I got a girl hung herself in the guest house of, uh, it's on Ocean Boulevard across from the hotel, same place that you came and got the kid yesterday. Okay, sir, what is the address? I'm not sure. uh, 19, I'm in the back house, it's 1928 something. Uh, I'm not sure. Let me call you back. Okay, sir, is she still alive? I don't know. I'm fine. you get? Sir, are you there? Are you Are alive? the address no sir I need the address you came here yesterday to
1: take up a little boy okay sir I wasn't working yesterday I don't know what you're talking about records sir I checked all of the records yesterday I can't find anything on Ocean Boulevard can you
2: tell me what the address is
0: As you can hear, Adam keeps trying to tell them to look up where they picked up Max, but they can't find a record of the prior call because Max's accident had actually happened two days before, not the day before. You can hear Adam breathless and running, probably to check the address at the front of the house. You can also hear, in the portions of static and breathlessness, the exact moments when Adam ran into the kitchen looking for a knife dragged a broken table under the window where Rebecca hung and stood on top of it, holding her limp body across one arm, using the other to cut her down. He says he then laid her on the grass, removed the blue T-shirt that was stuffed in her mouth, and says he tried to administer CPR. You can hear him cussing and yelling on the 911 recording, Are you alive? Police and EMS arrived, and Rebecca was declared dead on the scene. They determined she had died at around 3 a.m. They made that determination based on the condition of the body. And as you know, medical examiners and pathologists look at something called rigor. There are four stages of death. And the third stage is rigor mortis. And this is when muscles and joints contract and stiffen. Even the expressions on the victim's face can freeze, and this sets in within two hours. It usually has spread completely through the body in eight hours, and this stiffened, rigid state can last anywhere from 18 hours to two or three days. They also look at liver mortis, which is blood gravity. And this is where you see a corpse that has a blue tint to it because blood gravitates to dependent parts of the body. These are soft tissue parts of the body where blood will move just based on gravity. And if the person was hanging, it would collect in their fingertips, toes, and earlobes. And you have lividity after 12 hours, and lividity is set in, you know, sometimes if you're real flush, you can press on your skin and it gets white and then goes back to being red. Once lividity has set in, you can press on it and it doesn't turn white for a few minutes because there's no circulation whatsoever. And that usually sets in after 12 hours. Pathologists and medical examiners also look at algor mortis, which is the rate the temperature of the body is acclimatizing to the environment, which gives an indication of when the person died this can be greatly affected by outside temperature clothing drugs that they may have taken so if it's cold outside they look to see how quickly the core temperature drops so they look at temperature they look at what point the body has become rigid and if it is still so and they look at lividity which is pooling of the blood in dependent areas so you can look at the four stages of death and they all can occur sometimes simultaneously but they do help to set a timeline at least roughly as to when someone has died now adam was the one who broke the news of rebecca's death to jonah jonah and dina were with max when adam called jonah left his son's side to take the call dina says when he came back he told her rebecca had killed herself when Dina asked why, she says Jonah kind of mimed, stabbing himself in the gut and said, Asian honor. Only Jonah knows what he's talking about there, but I think there are some stereotypic views of that culture that if you failed in some way that you hold yourself accountable. This seemed to me to be a really strange reaction when your girlfriend has just killed herself, your son is in a coma, but those same factors that make that a strange reaction when you stand to the side and look at it are also the same two conditions that make normal reactions not normal. I mean, you're stretched to the end of your coping abilities. That's when you're going to do something unusual, that's when you're going to do something unpredictable because you've run out of coping energy, you're still in shock, and now someone has just added to this. You're numb sitting there at your son's bedside, and then somebody says, you know what, that's not enough to contend with, let me now tell you, your girlfriend has killed herself. So it's just pain on top of pain. Meanwhile, back at the Spreckles Mansion, the Coronado police and the San Diego County Sheriff's Department had begun processing the scene. At this point, they were still treating Rebecca's death as a possible homicide. They searched the second story guest room where Rebecca's body went over the ledge. They were looking for clues. They found the other end of the noose that was tied around Rebecca's neck, fastened to the bed frame. They also found two knives, black paint, brushes, And that cryptic message scrawled on the door. She saved him. Can you save her? They questioned Jonah and Adam. They questioned Jonah's ex-wife, Max's mother, Dina, and Rebecca's ex-husband, Neil. They all cooperated with the investigation. At the end of his interview, Jonah seemed scared, even asking officers if he needed protection. How and why did he go from thinking a murderer was on the loose to being so sure, believing wholeheartedly as he does now, that this was suicide? Police cleared most people they questioned. Neil was seen at a gym in Arizona the morning Rebecca died. Jonah had been captured on video at the Ronald McDonald house. Dina was on video at the hospital. The only person questioned, who was not on tape, was Adam. And Rebecca's family doesn't buy his story of tucking himself into bed and going to sleep. Adam says he has cooperated with investigators from the beginning and has nothing to hide. He has been consistent with his story from the beginning and has never wavered. But he was still the only other known person there. And Rebecca's family believes he therefore had opportunity and they believe he used it. He did something with that opportunity. Rebecca's family say that police also began making some serious mistakes. They took DNA samples from Adam, but they didn't test a glass of clear liquid found in the guest house. Rebecca's body was left lying in the hot sun. Hours after she was found dead, a local news helicopter captured an aerial image of her under a blanket, lying crumpled on the grass of the mansion's front lawn. I've been involved in working with police after crimes, and... Every situation is different. You preserve a crime scene, you cordon off the area, you make sure that it's not contaminated, and you begin to gather your data and your information. How long the body is there, there could be a lot of reasons for it being taken away quickly. There can be a lot of reasons for it remaining there for a period of time. But I can assure you that there's no set time. The body should be removed within 30 minutes or 40 minutes or an hour and a half or whatever. And it being in the sun doesn't change any of the outcome in terms of the decisions that are made in terms of time of death or whatever. Those decisions are made very early on when they first get there. So they're certainly bothered that it was left lying there so long. I don't know the explanation for that, but I can tell you that to me, having been on many, many crime scenes, everyone is different, and there is no set time. There is no specific timeline. They also say that police blew off two crucial clues, loud music allegedly coming from the mansion, and later a witness who claims she heard a yell for help. Now, that Tuesday night, just one night after Max's devastating accident, on the night Rebecca died, neighbors reported hearing what sounded like a loud party coming from the Spreckles mansion. They claimed they heard music blaring. But was it really a party? There was supposed to be a gathering at the mansion. Rebecca was actually planning it the weekend before Max's accident. But with Max lying near death in the hospital, struggling to survive an accident that happened on her watch, could Rebecca really be cold enough? Evil enough? Insensitive enough to go through with throwing a party? I mean, who would do that? Who would have any kind of celebration when a child is lying hooked up to machines in a hospital? Who would even show up? And would she really risk sending that kind of message? What would Jonah's reaction be? Can you imagine what he would think about it? Her family says that just didn't happen. They don't know what neighbors heard. They don't know where the music was coming from or why it was playing. But they can say there is absolutely no way a party happened. Plus, every inch of this case has been covered in the media. There are thousands of news articles. We have searched them all and could not find one single person who says they were at some party at the mansion that night, or even knew anyone who was. Police also never confirmed that this mystery party took place. But if there wasn't a party, what was going on? What was the blaring music a neighbor claimed they heard? If it was just Rebecca in the main house and Adam in the guest house, why would music be blasting? Rebecca's family has wondered, could the loud music have been playing to cover up the sounds of a murder, the sounds of an attack? That could certainly make sense, yet police say there were no signs of a struggle. That's the really difficult thing about this case. For everything that pushes you in one direction to think, well, yes, that just might be what happened, there's something else that explains it away. But Rebecca's family isn't letting anything explain away what one neighbor says she heard. At 11 p.m., just four hours before police believe Rebecca Zahau took her final breath, a woman who lived two doors down says she heard a scream for help floating through the night. She testifies she believed it was coming from the front of the Spreckles Mansion. There was a lot of challenge to whether it was even possible to hear what this neighbor says she heard, and also about the sound. Sound travels in funny ways. The wind's blowing a certain way. It carries sound waves further than it's blowing another way. Sometimes we can think that sound is coming from one house when really it's two houses further up, or it's from something behind it. We just don't know. That can certainly be misunderstood and misattributed. But a scream for help. I'm not much for coincidences. And it just comes down to whether you believe this lady heard what she says she heard. But wouldn't it seem to be a really odd coincidence that on the night a woman loses her life a few doors up, that a neighbor hears a cry for help? But if she did hear it, why didn't she do something about it?
2: Mystery and Murder Analysis by Dr. Phil.
0: Before we get back to the story we're talking about today, I want to share something with you. You're about to enjoy a trailer of what's coming up on Dr. Phil for the rest of the month of May. I've made a decision that we've all reached saturation levels, what I call category fatigue. We have been looking and listening and thinking about coronavirus and COVID-19 24-7 for about six weeks now. And I am of the strong belief that we need a break. Let's get back to some of the content that we really find interesting, entertaining, educational, relatable, informative, and instructive. And right before we got shut down for the pandemic, we had just taped a series of shows that we had compiled to air in May. That's a time that we save some of our favorite best shows for, because that's an important time for our advertisers. So I've made the decision for the remainder of this month, we're going to do a look back and show all new original shows that were shot before the pandemic. They're back on stage, back in studio, exciting, full of energy, and really, really good shows. Here's a peek at what you're going to see for the rest of the month of May.
1: All this May. Dr. Phil is back with all new shows, recorded before the stay-at-home order. I was an actor, a model, a Hollywood body double. A mysterious illness. If I don't force-feed myself, my body will go into an attack.
0: She feels atomic hunger and feels as if she's being electrocuted. All-new drama. You've been putting men ahead of her for a long time.
1: You have been doing nothing but criminal activities. Am I going to
0: pack her off somewhere for 90 days so you can take a break?
1: Hell no. All-new stories.
0: 74-year-old Norma says she's in love with three different men. She's never even met in person. She says they are stuck in foreign countries. The grand total that you have sent to Jeff is $223,710.56. I was trying to help him get home. For a quarter million dollars, you can buy an airplane and fly home. Dr. Phil
1: is all new. All this May.
0: Hey, you know, we're coming into springtime, and it looks like we're going to have a lot of time sitting around home. So shopping online is the smart play. You can give yourself a springtime spruce up and enjoy brighter, healthier skin thanks to my wife, Robin McGraw's Revelations Brightening Trio. This unique triple-action skin brightening kit will help you shine bright all day, every day by eliminating sunspots, rejuvenating dull skin, and restoring your youthful glow. This trio features Let There Be Bright, Starlight Face Bright, and twinkle, twinkle, you're a star. And you can only get them at robinregalrevelation.com. And right now, you get 30% off all products. 30% off all products. Just use code RMR30. RMR30. An investigator later testified that it was his job to question all the neighbors. He said one of them told him that she had heard a woman's voice the night Rebecca died, but the investigator said she changed her story, saying the yell could have come from some children playing outside. Rebecca and Adam didn't get home until around 8 p.m., and police said she died hours later. It was summertime, but still, would there really be children playing outside in the yard that late at night? Two days after Rebecca was found dead, Adam Shacknai was given a polygraph test. The test included 10 yes or no questions, and was conducted by a reputable polygrapher named Paul Redden. Adam was asked, did you yourself do anything to Rebecca that resulted in her death? And were you in the guest room that she was found hanging from at any time during the night? Adam replied no to both those questions. Take a listen. Regarding the death of Rebecca, did you
4: yourself do anything to her that resulted in her death? No. Do you know for sure if anyone did anything to her that resulted in her death? No.
0: Redden also asked Adam some questions that weren't part of the actual exam. And you can hear that Adam is sometimes giving his opinion, not just answering yes or no.
2: So I went around the back into the house, which the door was open. I got a knife from the butcher block thing, Mm -hmm. came back out, cut her down and probably call 911 shortly thereafter, if
0: not before. Well, I want to be very clear. I am not a professional polygraph examiner, but I have worked with many over the years, and I have studied polygraphs, and I am very troubled in trying to understand the protocol that was followed here because I don't think there are many that are conversant with polygraph exams that would disagree that a single-issue test is much more valid and much more reliable than multiple-issue tests. And by what I mean by that is a single-issue test asks about one issue, and the test will ask about it in two different ways, but it will be one issue. For example, the test would be, were you involved in the death of Jane Doe? And then the second question would be, did you cause the death of Jane Doe? Same question, slightly different, one issue, your involvement in the death of this person, Jane Doe. That's not what happened here. This was a multiple issue test, and there weren't just yes or no answers. Now, Is a multiple-issue test illegitimate? No. Multiple-issue tests are given, but sophisticated investigators would be expected to know that if you're going after one piece of information, go after that one piece of information. Get the most valid result you can get. Now, this polygraph examiner found Adams' test results inconclusive, but he went on the record and said he felt Adam was being truthful during the examination. Now, my very dear late friend, Jack Tremarco, was a former ex-FBI agent, and he was in charge of the entire polygraph division in Los Angeles. I worked with him on countless cases after he retired from the FBI. He was truly, in my opinion, the best of the best nationwide. And when he heard about Adam Shackney's results, he was very vocal in the media, saying Adam needed to be given another polygraph. Jack said, and I quote, for someone with Redden's credentials and reputation to say that he wasn't able to draw a conclusion but felt Adam Shacknai was telling the truth simply isn't acceptable. He went on to say polygraphers don't let emotions or gut feelings or observations to include body language and verbalizations taint the results if the test is inconclusive, as it was in this case. You state that you have no opinion, period. End of discussion. This means you run another test with new questions. Polygraphers aren't trained to judge people's feelings. It's just not something we do or have the capability of doing. Adam Shacknai needs to be given another polygraph test. End of quote. Now, Jack's very humorless about these things. He is very scientific about these things. He teaches polygraph and Oftentimes, what happens is a polygraph is given, the charts that are generated by the computer used in the polygraph are scored numerically, and then they are sent blind to another polygraph examiner who doesn't know the subject, doesn't have any connection to the case whatsoever, and they're asked to score the charts just in the blind as a control. And I don't know where that was done here or not. But the result was inconclusive, and for a polygrapher to say they felt one way or another is just simply getting out of their lane, in my opinion. He said he believed Adam Shacknai should be given another polygraph test, and I agree with him. And if I was Adam and knew myself to be innocent, I would want that cleared up, A, because it was inconclusive, and B, because multi-issue testing does not give accurate results introduce another issue and you're just muddying the waters. Accuracy is compromised. You'll hear people say it's okay, but it's not. James Allen Matt, the world's most respected polygraph expert, quotes the multi-issue test is a degradation of the single issue test. There is sparse research to support their reliability and validity. In simple terms, the entire theoretical basis for a polygraph test no longer applies if you ask more than one relevant issue. So that whole area, for me in this case, is muddied. And I think Adam deserves for it to be cleared up. But despite the inconclusive poly, Adam was cleared to leave town and he headed home. Max Shacknai would die on July 17, five days after Rebecca. Seven weeks would go by before San Diego County Sheriff Bill Gore held a media briefing and announced his office had determined Rebecca's death was a suicide. As far as Max's death, the theory of him having a heart attack was dismissed. Despite a physician telling Dina Max might have been suffocated before he died, police said they determined Max was racing down the hallway on his scooter when he tripped or fell over the railing, bringing the low-hanging chandelier down with him. Here's what Sheriff Gore said.
1: On Monday, July 11th, paramedics and Coronado police officers uh, responded to a 911 call at 1043 uh, Ocean Boulevard in Coronado. They administered emergency medical care to six-year-old Max Shackney and transported him to Sharp Hospital in Coronado. They then took him to Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. The Coronado Police Department immediately began an investigation into the cause of Max's injuries. On Wednesday, July 13th at 6.48 a.m., Another 911 call brought paramedics and Coronado police officers back to the same Coronado residence. Rebecca Zahau, who resided at this house with Max's father, Jonas Shackney, had been discovered hanging naked from his small bedroom balcony with her feet and hands bound. Tragically, Max succumbed to his injuries on Saturday, July the 16th. Were these deaths the result of criminal conduct? Was Max's death a homicide? The answer is no. It was a tragic accident. Was Rebecca's death a homicide? Again, the answer is no, it was a suicide. To reach these conclusions relied in substantial measure upon the physical evidence, the scene of each event, witness interviews, the medical evidence, and the forensic evidence including DNA, fingerprints, and biomechanics. They are all compelling and all point persuasively to a single conclusion. These deaths were not the result of any criminal acts. The conclusions presented today are based on good, methodical, investigative work and science. Science is our best witness in this case. Science is not biased and it does not lie.
0: Investigators explain how Rebecca made a noose, tied one end of it to the footboard of the bed, and then tied her feet together. They said she then slipped the noose around her neck and bound her hands. Although unusual, it is not unheard of for people committing suicide to take measures to ensure they can't change their mind. Binding hands prevents that. Oftentimes people are afraid they will lose their nerve, but are convinced they want to go through with it. The investigators believe she then went outside to the balcony and launched herself over the edge. There were no drugs or alcohol in her system. I know as you're thinking about this, you're thinking this is a very odd suicide. And you are correct. It is statistically odd, and we'll talk about that a bit in a moment. The medical examiner told reporters there was no evidence of a struggle, and Rebecca was alive when she went over the balcony. Police reiterated all evidence pointed to Rebecca dying at her own hand. In a press conference, the police stated...
4: Outside we found Rebecca. She was laying on the lawn in the courtyard, roughly where I described previously. Her wrists and ankles were bound with red rope and her hands were behind her back. The same red rope and a t-shirt were around her neck and the same red rope was hanging over the balcony railing. There was a table below the balcony and a kitchen knife on the ground near Rebecca. The investigation showed the knife and table had been used by the reporting party to cut Rebecca down when she was discovered. Adam Shackney, the, the homeowner's brother, was the reporting party and had been staying in the guest house at the time. Inside, when we we approached the door to the guest room to which the balcony was attached, there was a message painted in black paint on the door leading to the room. Continuing inside, the rope, red rope, was found secured to the footboard of the bed. There were two kitchen knives, one large and one small, also on the floor near the bed. And the side of the bed to which the rope was attached had been pulled away from the wall. The red rope went out the double doors leading to the balcony and over the railing. Foot and toe impressions were found on the balcony tile, and the dust which had settled on the railing had been disturbed.
0: Rebecca's family can't wrap their heads around this conclusion. Her sister Mary talked to Rebecca on the phone that night, and she says she was fine. She says Rebecca even mentioned celebrating their dad's upcoming 80th birthday.
3: I was the last person that Becky talked to before she died. My sister did not indicate that she was depressed, suicidal, or wanted to hurt herself. It was almost like any other conversation except the fact that Max was injured. And after that conversation, she texted me to say Good night and I love you, which is pretty much what we do most of the time. Jonah had called me and told me that Becky had committed suicide. Telling my wife that her sister had died was probably the hardest thing I've had to do. It still feels like a dream or some bad horror movie. He told me Becky's dead. I looked at him and I said, no, she's not. I said, is this some kind of joke? And he's like, no. They told me that she committed suicide by hanging. I just lost it. I told him I need to talk to Jonah right now. And Jonah said, yeah, she's gone, Mary. It was very shocking. My sister is not the type of person to commit suicide.
0: What troubles her so much is what could have changed in Rebecca's final hours? So much so that she went from forward thinking, planning future events, to ending her life that night. Could she have really remained so calm on the phone, already knowing she was about to strip nude and hang herself in just a few hours? Well, police have an answer. They say the trigger that changed between when she spoke to her sister on the phone and when she took her own life, was a voicemail from Jonah. Police checked Rebecca's phone records. After texting with and talking to her family, she checked her voicemail at 12.50 a.m. They believe she listened to a message from Jonah, and in that voicemail, police say Jonah told her that, sadly, Max was likely going to die. Hours later, she was the one who was dead. But even if Jonah's message that Max wasn't going to make it devastated Rebecca, would a woman, especially one who by all accounts loved her boyfriend so dearly, really want him to suffer two losses at the same time? Rebecca had already shown she was unselfish by giving up a lot for Jonah and stated she wanted to be there to support him. Would she ever want him to go through the pain of not just the potential loss of Max, but suffer her own loss as well. No one knows what goes through a person's mind before they take their life. Even if they leave a suicide note, we know what somebody decides to say, but we don't know what they're really thinking. But what we have learned statistically by studying cases where people attempt to take their lives, whether they're successful or not, is that there's an absence of forward thinking in people that have decided to take their lives. So does that suggest that she didn't decide to take her life? Well, it suggests that she hadn't decided to do that when she was talking to her sister. And police say, well, she changed her mind. We also know that people that attempt suicide, successful and otherwise, feel like a burden. They think this world's just better off without me. The people that I love, are just going to have a better life if I'm not here. I don't want to be a burden. Had she decided that she was not going to be a help, that she was going to be a burden, that every time he looked at her, it was going to be painful, and she thought, I will save him that pain? It will hurt when I die, but it won't hurt every day that we're together from here on when he looks at me. We don't know what she might have thought, but we certainly know that her interactions with others did not indicate a typical suicidal mindset, behavioral set, or profile. Could that all have changed after some tragic news over the phone? Police believe the answer to that question is yes. But again, Rebecca's family say they don't believe she killed herself after hearing a troubling voicemail, and they zeroed in on Adam. But in order to look at this case objectively, as I said, I want you to explore all angles and possibilities. What if Adam has been telling the truth all these years? What if he really was asleep in the guest house, zonked out on Ambien that night? Who else was Rebecca connected to in the final days of her life that could have wanted her dead? Was there someone else in the mansion on the night she died? And if so, had they been there before? Could a chilling clue pointing to a mystery suspect lie in her sister Zena's 911 call. Is there a chance, any chance at all, that that unknown person hurt Max and then Rebecca? And who else could have had a motive? Despite Rebecca's family now, today, insisting they believe Adam is Rebecca's sole killer, like a game of Clue, through the years, Rebecca's family has actually pointed fingers at others. Their cloud of suspicion has hung not just over Adam, but over Dina, her twin sister Nina, and men from Rebecca's past. We'll tell you about those theories on the next episode of Mansion of Secrets, The Mysterious Death of Rebecca Zahal. I'm Dr. Phil.
1: All this May. Dr. Phil is back with all new shows, recorded before the stay-at-home order. I was an actor, a model, a Hollywood body double. A mysterious illness. If I don't force-feed myself, my body will go into an attack.
0: She feels atomic hunger and feels as if she's being electrocuted. All new drama. You've been putting men ahead of her for a long time.
1: You have been doing nothing but criminal activities.
0: Am I going to pack her off somewhere for 90 days so you can take a break? Hell no.
1: All new stories.
0: 74-year-old Norma says she's in love with three different men she's never even met in person. She says they are stuck in foreign countries. The grand total that you have sent to Jeff is $223,710.56. I was
2: trying to help him get
0: home. For a quarter million dollars, you could buy an airplane and fly home. Dr. Phil is all new, all this May.